the thing is, and this is one of the things I think it's forgotten sometimes now, is that we stand on an incredibly long lineage and nothing that we think is original that we're doing is original. Mm -hmm. It's coming through us. And if we're lucky enough to be able to speak it or make it or do it, it's because we've been chosen. It's not because it's ours. It's ours to pass through us and to share and to pass on. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 50. Oh my gosh, 50 episodes. That's that's a lot. That's a lot. And I hope to do so, so many more. And I can't believe I've done this many. Uh, today, I am sharing my interview with Rosemary Gladstar. I, I love it that it's her for the 50th episode. You know, I didn't realize until I was saying it to her, as you will hear in the interview, I didn't really realize that um, she is a direct elder in my herbal lineage, in in my learning of herbalism. And, you know, if it weren't for her, this podcast certainly wouldn't exist. If it weren't for her, the herbal community in the West wouldn't look like it does at all in any way. We'll talk so much about um, what she's created and this just beautiful legacy that she has brought to to the world of healing and returning to the earthways of our ancestors. So yeah, we're going to get into all of that. But first, I want to let you know that our queen of heaven and earth breast oil is finally back in stock. It's been almost a year. Um, You know, we make all of our mythic medicinals products from herbs that we either grow organically here on our land or that we sustainably, respectfully, reverentially wildcraft. So they get made once a year and they often sell out. And this one sold out so quickly last year. So we made a whole lot more of it this year. It's made from rose petals, dandelion blossoms, and violet leaves. And this regal oil honors the immense powers and endless shapes of the female body. Breast tissue is incredibly absorbent, and these plants are known to nourish cells, dissolve hardness, and keep the lymph circulating. Named after Inanna, the most ancient of goddesses, at least the most ancient of written about, written down goddesses, may this oil remind you that the divine feminine is you and that self-worship is a good thing. It would also be lovely to rub into your belly and womb area and be sure to get it into the lymphatic tissue in the armpits um, that is connected to the breasts. And of course, just to be clear, you can rub it anywhere to learn more about um, breast health and, you know, what we call breast self-massage, self-exams, which I really love the reframing of this as just getting to know the terrain of your body. Listen to episode 33 of this podcast with Anya Robinson. It's called Root Cause Medicine and Breasts as an Intuitive Center. And one ingredient that I forgot to name is rose essential oil. This is the only time I use an essential oil in my medicine making, and it's purely for the sensory delight that it brings to the experience of 
breast massage. And if you listened a few episodes ago, was it episode 47, all about rose medicine, then you know about the transportative powers of the scent of rose. Um, So you can check that out now at mythicmedicine.love. The Patreon giveaway. Thank you so much to Rosemary for offering this for patrons of this podcast at the $2 a month level. It is two recipes, two herbal recipes. One is for an echinacea mouth rinse and the other is for an elderberry syrup. And then there's also a coupon code to get $75 off Rosemary's decades, decades long, decades in the running um, home study course called The Science and Art of Herbalism. So this is a 10 lesson course taken at your own pace with homework review and guidance provided by carefully selected herbalists and by Rosemary herself. Though it thoroughly instills in the student the practical skills necessary to practice herbal home health care, it doesn't ignore the rich spirit and essence of herbalism. The heart of the course is the development of a deep personal relationship with the plant world. Many of the students have written telling them that this course has been transformational and one of the most self-empowering studies they have undertaken. Thousands of people have taken this journey over the last 30 years, bringing herbal healing into their homes and communities. Rosemary weaves the magic of nature, a reverence for life, and a commitment to share the wisdom of herbs with others through her teachings. So you can choose to take it all online. You can choose to have it printed out and sent to you if you prefer to hold the materials in your hands, or there's an option to do it both ways. So at patreon.com slash medicine stories is where you can download those two recipe cards as well as get the $75 off coupon code, which expires July 31st, 2019. So if you feel called to study with Rosemary, then be sure to check it out sooner rather than later. Um, a few A few things to mention real quick before we get into it is that Rosemary talks about her um, the United Plant Savers Foundation, which she founded. And I just really want to encourage you to check it out. Of course, I have the link right there in the show notes. And to look at the, the page that tells the at-risk plants and the to-watch plants. This is a list that every herbalist should be familiar with. So you know which herbs are really at risk and being over-harvested and which herbs are close to being at risk, which herbs to watch. Um, If you are wildcrafting or interested in wildcrafting in any way, or just being in the herbal community in any way, familiarize yourself with this list, check up on it every now and then see what's changing. And also, of course, check out freefiresider.com. I think it's .com. Again, the link will be in the show notes to keep updated on what is going on with the really actually insane um, fire cider lawsuit. We talk all about it in this episode. So listen on if you don't know about it and you can donate there too, if you would like to, if you feel so called. Um, And then one final thing is Rosemary mentions woofers. She says the word woofers there kind of at the beginning. And it occurred to me that probably some people don't know what that is. It is W W O O F which stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. 
And I just know this because back in 2005, at the very beginning of my herbal wanderings, when I worked at the Sacramento Natural Foods Co-op, um, I became familiar with the idea of woofing. There were a lot of farms in Sacramento, still are organic farms, and people coming through who had woofed on farms all over the world. It's a really amazing thing. And I actually kind of did it once. I went to Arizona when I was pregnant with my almost 13-year-old now. So yeah, over 13 years ago, I stayed on a little organic farm in Arizona as part of the woof program, and it was pretty cool. All right. If you don't know about Rosemary, let me tell you a little bit. She has been practicing, living, learning, teaching, and writing about herbs for over 45 years. She's the author of 12 books, including Medicinal Herbs, A Beginner's Guide, Herbal Healing for Women, Gladstar Herbal Recipes for Vibrant Well-Being, and her most recent book, Herbal Healing for Men. She's also the author and director of the popular home study course, The Science and Art of Herbalism. Rosemary co-founded and was the former director of both the International Herb Symposium and the New England Women's Herbal Conference, is the founding president of United Plant Savers, and was the co-founder and original formulator of Traditional Medicinal Tea Company. I mean, look at all that. And now doing the free fire cider stuff and, um, the school that we talk about that she founded in Northern California back in the day. I mean, just a woman who has her hand in so many important movements in the herbal community. She recently moved from her home at Sage Mountain, an herbal retreat center and botanical sanctuary where she has lived, taught, and worked for the past 30 years to a smaller haven where she plans to plant a small garden, dream more, do less, and spend more time with the plants. You can check out more at sagemountain.com and scienceandartofherbalism.com. Those links are in the show notes. And again, if you're interested in the Science and Art of Herbalism home study course, then um, check out my Patreon for the $75 off coupon code and for two free recipe cards that'll give you an idea what it's all about. Um, you know, I say this at the very end to Rosemary herself, but what a wonderful, kind, generous, humble human being Rosemary Gladstar is. I had heard all these things about her all these years. Um, we never had chance to have our paths cross and that was fine. And then, you know, a few months ago, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to reach out to her and see if she would be on the podcast. She's, you know, just made such a difference in so many people's lives. And so graciously agreed and um, had just a sweet time trying to schedule it and changing and schedules changing and people's needs being what they are. Um, I just was so struck by how I think the vast majority of people in her position would not be quite as kind and lovely as she is. So thank you, Rosemary. You are an example to all of us. And now let's get into this lovely interview with Rosemary Gladstar. Hello, Rosemary. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here with you. It's so, so sweet to have you here. And just before we pressed record, I mentioned to you that I feel nervous before every interview, no matter how wonderful the person is like you, or if they're a very close friend of mine. And you mentioned that you also feel nervous before you teach. And I remember that you wrote about that. I think it was in Plant Healer magazine. 
that I remember actually I quoted you, I put it up on Instagram and everything because you had this whole quote about how nervous you get and you take kava before you teach. And it was so inspiring for me to see like this, you know, herbal master, whatever words you want to use, still gets nervous, but still pushes through her own fear to, to spread the good word. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's never, it's not really about you in truth. You know, if you can remember that, mm-hmm. there's this wonderful image of this that I've always loved. It's an old woodcut of a herbalist kneeling to the earth as she's harvesting. And I, that's always been such a powerful image for me because it really is kneeling to the earth and receiving from the earth and then giving back to the earth. And so sometimes the little person who's the channel and all of that gets nervous, but you just put it aside and then the force is powerful. <laughs> mm. Just let it flow. <laughs> That's so helpful because as I'm sure you know, so many people are coming into herbalism right now, just a flood of interest in healing with plants, which is wonderful. And we need those people and we need those voices. So I really appreciate that perspective and guidance from you. Great. So I would love to hear this story of of your name, of the name Rosemary. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I feel very lucky. I was uh, I was the third child in a, a family of five. My parents thoughtfully named each of their children, Billy, Betty, Bobby, Diane. And I was fortunate enough, I feel, to get the name Rosemary. I always think, I used to tease my sisters, if they'd ended up with my name, I would have had to fight them for it. <laughs> I was named after my two grandmothers, um, Rose and Mary. Actually, one of my grandmothers' name was Rosemary, but my mother was and my father were collectively putting those two names together. So, and one of my grandmothers, my on my mother's side, my my Armenian grandmother, she was an herbalist. So, you know, I felt like I just feel like you know that I was chosen at a very young age to carry on this tradition, and even named, you know, even given that name, which is a Rosemary is a pretty fantastic plant, so I'm really honored in that way as well. Yeah, I feel lucky to have that name, you know, gifted, really. Absolutely. It's just, it's like cosmic guidance from birth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, so do you have a special relationship with the plant, Rosemary? Oh, I think everybody does. All you have to do is look at Rosemary, and it's a pretty special plant. Um, you know, I, it is in my repertoire of allies for certain. I have a, a fairly large group of really close plant allies at this point in my life. And rosemary is one of them for certain. It wasn't one of my early ones. I always appreciated it. It's, a, you know, very powerful medicinal, a great culinary. It's one of those crossover plants. Even, be, even during that long period of time when people weren't using plants, rosemary weren't using medicinal plants. Rosemary was still used all the time. You, know, you could find it in every kitchen cabinet and grocery store. So, and those plants that were able to do that were able to disguise their power and make themselves ordinary and everyday were, a, were of a special interest to me because it's what I call soft power. It's kind of a magical power that is just around us, but people don't fully recognize it. It's just there working. So rosemary is very special in that way, but it wasn't really until later in my life that I began to really recognize what a powerful medicinal it is. Um, and, you know, really use it more in medicines for mental health and for as a very powerful antioxidant. I really am looking more towards those, those, towards those plants that are very sustainable and easy to grow and found in wide, 
ranges in the world, you know, because there's just, because of what you said, there's just so much interest in plants right now and not enough interest in plant conservation. So rosemary is one of those very powerful plants that lends itself to growing in a variety of habitats and then can be used safely, you know, even in our cooking, but also as a very strong medicine. And then the personality of it's just the being of that plant, you know, it's a kind of a, a it grows in many different forms, but in its <laughs> one of the forms is, is this kind of a small shrub or a tree, almost a very, you know, healthy, hardy plant. And um, it can withstand a lot of, it doesn't like super cold weather, but can stand a lot of harsh weather. And um, it's just rich in aromatic oils and so just the plant itself has its own protective energy. And the legends of it, of course, are remarkable. Like one of my, there's many, but one of my favorite is that when um, Joseph and Mary were fleeing um, and Mary was trying to protect her unborn baby, they stopped in the desert and Joseph took off the cape, a blue cape off of Mary's shoulders and draped it over an unflowering shrub. And in the morning when they prepared to travel on and he took that cape off, the shrub had burst into blue flowers and Joseph said, behold, the rose of Mary. Mm. And that's how the plant was named. So, yeah, I mean, just even those stories, they're just, just so beautiful. And they tell so much about the power of the plant. Absolutely. The, the mythic element of plants is something <laughs> we talk about a lot on this show. So your Armenian grandmother, did she... Did your lives overlap enough in time for her to teach you some herbalism? Oh, yeah. She was my very first herb teacher, actually. Um, so when we were growing up, my grandparents, both of my sets of grandparents lived near to us. We were, we were uh, dairy farmers. We had a small dairy farm in Northern California. And um, so my Armenian grandmother, she was a survivor of the Armenian genocide. And she used to tell us when we were children growing up, it was her knowledge of the plants and her faith in God, because she was a very deeply religious woman as well, that saved her life. And she meant that literally, you know, like there was nothing to eat and my grandmother was able to collect foods. And then when they came to this country, um, they were still in, they were still a young couple, my, she and my grandfather. Um, you know, they had nothing because they were refugees from a terrible war. And, and so again, having that use of plants and knowing how to use the plants for healing, was a very powerful element in her life. And my, it was really interesting because even as I've grown older, my, every once in a while, my mother will tell me another story about my grandmother that just totally amazes me and confirms how much my grandmother knew because like just a couple of years ago, my mother was visiting me, which she is right now. She's, she's also an elder now, 95, and a wise and wonderful woman. But my mother was visiting me and I had my, my cupping set and my mother saw me. She goes, oh, yeah, the cups. My, grand my mom used to do that all the time to the neighbors. They'd come in, and she would cup them. You know, so, I mean, another lost art, of course, in our lifetime, but not in my grandmother's. And then also when my grandmother was a young woman still living in Armenia, she was very interested in healing and had been trained. I'm not sure who she got her training from, but I would imagine it would have been her grandmother in that traditional um, way that herbalism is been passed down um, but she was interested enough that she was in nursing school she was actually studying to be a nurse so that she could further her healing but that of course was interrupted and was never resumed so yeah she had a, a very powerful knowledge but I always like to point out that my grandmother 
was probably trained in much the same way that many of the people of that generation was, because herbs were the primary system of healing used by these people. And it wasn't something that you went off to study, you just learned it from your family, and then you incorporated it into your daily life. So it wasn't something unique that you did. I mean, if you look back, you can even see in this country, if you look back in the earliest, um, you know, cookbooks, all of the cookbooks, there's an entire sections in the back about how to use herbs for healing. So it's just part of what you were trained to do. So my grandmother understood and knew plants probably on a deeper level than most people, but similar in the sense of knowing how to use them for everyday health and wellness. So it sounds like this this transmission of this herbalism being in your bones might have come from your like pure matrilineal line as your mother's mother. And you're saying she probably learned it from her grandmother. I just I really love thinking about the mother line and that sounds like a very powerful legacy. Yes, it was a very powerful legacy, yeah. Do you have any specific memories of her using plants? Um yeah, I remember one time when I was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years old. And I was, um, I mentioned I lived on a dairy farm. So this is, this is a, always a, a good quote that I always liked, or a good story I like to say, not specifically about my grandmother, but I'll get back to that. But um, so we grew up, there were five kids in my family, and we grew up on a small dairy farm. And in our entire childhood, there was only two times that my parents had to take us to the hospital. So everything was taken care of by my parents and through home remedies and home health care, except for two instances. Once when my sister fell off a horse and broke her hip, obviously that required medical assistance. And when my little sister swallowed rat poison, which was terribly frightening, and she did survive. It was a good story. But of course, they took her to the hospital. So my grandmother lived, lived near to us, as I said, and sometimes, you know, very close and so, you know, anytime we had flus and colds and fevers and stuff, grandma was there using things. But, and most of everything that she used was just common kitchen stuff or things that they were growing in their garden. But one time I do remember I ran into a pitchfork. I still have the scar on my leg. You know, the pitchfork was laying upwards and I was just running to the barn and got that stuck in my leg. And, um, you know, that in, especially in a barnyard situation, there's always the fear of tetna. You know, today, that's what all responsible parents would do. But back in those days, especially if you were immigrants, you were worried about hospitals and you couldn't afford medicine. And so um, my grandmother soaked um, vinegar. That was a very common household ingredient. So I was hot, hot water, Epsom salts, and then vinegar packs on it. And uh, it healed up wonderfully, of course. And um, all I have is a little scar that reminds me of the time I ran into a pitchfork. <laughs> I remember because it was very painful. So, yeah, things like that. And what I, what I think really some of my best memories of my grandmother was being in the garden with her. And she would be weeding and she would always have a basket where half of the weeds went into the basket. The other half went into the compost. But like all of the common weeds that we use today, chickweed, amaranth, lamb's quarter, um, purslane, which was one of her very favorites, that, those would all go into the gathering basket and come in and be made into soups and stews. And when I first started teaching, I was in my early 20s, so it was like in the 1970s. My grandmother was still quite a, quite well, and, and you know she was at that point maybe in her early 80s and or maybe late 70s. And she would I would bring her with me to some of my classes 
Um, because somehow in, in me, I recognize the power and the necessity of bringing out the elders and the teachings of them. It's always been something that I've been proud of in myself is recognizing, even at a young age, how powerful these powerful older people were and how precious it was to have them be with us. So they were always included in our herbal gatherings. So my grandmother would come and she would make what she'd call her horta or her stews, which were all those wild greens. And as I said, mostly purslane. She loved purslane. And, um, and then served that to my students, you know, so that was always cool. That's amazing. <laughs> How sweet. What, I mean, what truly a blessed childhood and family. Well, in those ways, yes. But, you know, growing up extremely poor on a dairy farm, yeah, I would say it was blessed, really. There wasn't a lot of hardships for us. For my parents, there were, you know, they were yeah. always trying to figure out how to how to greet the bill collectors at the door. Yeah. <laughs> but for us children, it was pretty idyllic and certainly at an idyllic time, you know, where you, you your kids could get off the bus and no, no parents ever waited for them. I mean, who would do that? Parents yeah. were at home when you came home because you could just go play in the entire fields and run across, you know, two miles to the neighbors and play. Yeah, it was a very different time, and I do feel very fortunate. Yeah, and just so many of our intergenerational relationships have been lost today. So many people, you know, don't grow up with their grandparents. Oh, yeah, that was very precious. <laughs> yeah, and so amazing that your mother is still with you at 95. Oh, yeah, and very vital and strong and fun and zesty. <laughs> we were just talking about it the other day. You know, she's, she says she doesn't, I mean, her body feels older now. I know that's confusing to her. But she still feels about 17, you know, that's her favorite age. Go figure, right? Most of us want to get out of those teen years, but mom loved being 17. Um, So while you started teaching classes in your early 20s, so was there ever, was this a straight trajectory for you from like childhood? Did you already always know you were going to do herbalism? And it also sounds like you were coming into it right as there was like the beginning wave of the herbal renaissance in America. How did that all weave together? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I think it was a straight, um, kind of a, a, a thought out path for me, you know, not necessarily by me, but for me, (laughs) And not definitely not by my parents or anything. They were always a little worried about me, wondering when I would grow up and find something to earn a livelihood, right? <laughs> but um, I think really from a very early age, there is that selection process by the plants, you know, and if you even show any interest, they grab you, mm. pull you into service, and then you better watch out because <laughs> you are signed up for life, <laughs> which is a good life. Um, yeah, so, you know, it wasn't ever like I made it, there was, it was ever like I made a conscious decision I was going to be an herbalist because herbalism was not really a profession in the 1970s or the 1980s, really, even the beginning of them. Um, and people who went into it, you know, following a passion, they certainly weren't doing it thinking they were going to earn a livelihood from it. It was just not a possibility at that point, or at least, I mean, I think we created that possibility, right? Right jumping in and actually helping to, to fan this renaissance that we have seen take off. But even when I was like in my earliest years and in high school and in elementary school, all of my projects were almost always centered around plants. Like my seventh and eighth grade science projects were native uses of wild medicinal plants in Sonoma County. And I composed these books made of the plants and how the native peoples use them to the best of my knowledge with what, what limited information was available then. Um, and then, you know, right after high school, um, I just, 
it was I was born kind of in the midst of the back to the earth movement or not born in it, but it was taking off right at that time. And I just, you know, was compelled to head up into the mountains and backpack. And I learned so much doing that and, you know, spent a couple of years just kind of free spiriting and learning a lot from old people that I'd meet in the woods and, you know, work for them on their farms. This was before woofers was even a thing. And, and then I just got, I just felt compelled to come back and, give back. You know, I, I described it then, which I laugh because I was so young, but I described it as this period of grace. And now I needed to go back and do something for people. And so I went back, it was 1972. I opened my first strip store in Sonoma County called Roseberry's Garden. It's actually still there. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty incredible to go back after all these years and still see that wonderful little store. Um, and that was really started as kind of a idea of a home apothecary, um, a place where people could come and get herbs because there wasn't really in California even there wasn't much available. There was one really good herb store, one and one only good herb store, and that was located in San Francisco, which was an hour and a half south of where I lived. There might have been an herb store also in um, Southern California and LA, and there were definitely herb stores in the Chinatowns. So in during that period, it's really hard to really embrace this, but it's absolutely true. There were small ethnic communities that were still using plants, like um, the Chinese communities were still, you know, they had their Chinese herb doctors, et cetera. Some of the Middle Eastern communities and stuff. And also in very rural pockets, like in the Appalachians, because people were too poor to use. It wasn't because of choice. It wasn't like, oh, great, let's use herbs. It was they didn't have access to other types of medicine. So they were using it. It was a very different time than what we're witnessing now. So, yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, it was just kind of uh, kind of an organic thing. I opened that herb store and I had no intention of teaching. I'm basically kind of a shy, quiet individual. I would much rather be in the background, but um, I always say I'm the kind of an introvert living an extrovert's life. I have cancer rising and Sagittarian sun. So my Sag is kind of dominated, but my cancer has been screaming out all this time right now. <laughs> so, you know, I just, it was my neighbors and friends who were saying, oh, you should start teaching, you know, teach us about the plant. So I hold, held a few little classes in my living room, you know, had maybe four or five people and then six and seven. Very quickly it grew. It was amazing how quickly. And so then I was teaching and renting big halls and churches for teaching. And I remember teaching at the Unitarian Life Fellowship and, you know, having a couple hundred people. And this was just, you know, really just a few months after I started because people were craving this information and it wasn't available. And also I have to say, I think I was impassioned. I was in, on fire with it. You know, it was just pouring through me. And I think I could really engage people and bring people into the into that w magical world that plants offered us. So I feel very blessed and fortunate to have been able to be a channel and a voice for the plants. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have to echo the introvert living the extrovert's life thing and also mention that I'm also cancer rising. Oh, so you know. I know. I just want to be home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so then you started the California School of Herbal Studies as well, right? In the in Sebastopol yeah. area. Well, really, what happened after the classes was people kept asking, you know, we need to do more. So I thought, well, we'll have a little retreat, see if other people are out there interested. I had gone to 
this incredible spiritual retreat that was offered by a, 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 a very famous person at that time, Hari Das Baba, who was Ram Das's teacher. And it was just wonderful. It was like a weekend where people would come and do yoga and asanas and meditate. And I was thinking, oh, we could do something similar like this for herbalism. Um, nothing like that was happening that I know of in the country. And so it was like in 1974, we hosted the first herbal conference. And we had about, I think we had 50 people come that first weekend. Um, it was $25 for the weekend. It was lodging and food and, you know, music at night and dancing. And then these fabulous classes during the day and hot tubs. And it was like, this is absolutely magical to be in a circle of other people who feel the same, that are as impassioned and, you know, are being moved by the plants. It was just like we had to come home. And so we started doing those on a seasonal basis and offering them, you know, if they were Friday, Saturday, Sunday events, and they grew rapidly. They went from like 50 to 100 to a couple hundred people really quickly. And then from there, that's when people were saying, well, we want to study more, right? So it was always, so then I thought, well, we'll start a school. I mean, I knew nothing about starting schools and there were no models. I mean, there was no other there was no other schools that master of schools had closed down in the United States in the 1930s. Those eclectic medical schools. There were a couple of correspondences courses that were offered one by Dr. Christopher and another by the Dominion herb school that was in Canada. Um, and they were both really good courses run by wonderful people. So, you know, we just opened this herb school and, it, you know, I, I'm not really sure. Again, I think it was just divine inspiration, you know, of how to put it together and the classes to offer. And then I wanted to bring in lots of different herb teachers. So I started like finding other herbalists who were doing this work. And we had this fabulous, amazing staff. And we ran programs almost year round. We had like 10 month programs. We had intern programs. We had weekend programs. When I look back at those calendars, it was like we were teaching herbs 24 seven about 11 and a half months a year. <laughs> and the only thing I could say is it's, I could do it because I was young, you know, and on fire, you know, I was really impassioned by the work. I felt like, you know, I could see the difference it was making. It was really incredible. I could see the difference it was making in people's lives. I could see the difference it was making in a bigger circle. I could even at that time, even then begin to see the difference that we were making in the medical field where that, where health care was beginning to really emphasize the care and the health rather than the sickness and the illness. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so at some point in the 80s, my, at that time, future teacher, Cami McBride, came to study with you. And Cami, she, she was my first teacher, and I always say my most important teacher and I mean, I just look at that lineage transmission, you know, from you to Cami, and I'm sure many other students who you had in those years, who now Cami has gone on to reach so many people. And now I have gone on to reach so many people with this podcast. And it's all thanks to you, Rosemary. <laughs> well, no, I can just look behind me and say it's all thanks to the people who are behind me. You know, the, the thing is, and this is one of the things I think is forgotten sometimes now is that we stand on an incredibly long lineage and nothing that we think is original that we're doing is original. Mm -hmm. It's coming through us. And if we're lucky enough to be able to speak it or make it or do it, it's because we've been chosen. It's not because it's ours. It's ours to pass through us and to share and to pass on. 
And I just think sometimes, you know, with all this claiming going on of, of stuff, you know, my formulas and my this and my that. And, you know, it's like, there's one thing that I remember early on when there wasn't a lot of people doing things and you had the opportunity to feel a little original and different, you know. And I remember I would go to somebody else's class or I'd read something, maybe an article somebody had written, and I'd be going, my God, that's exactly almost the same thing that I thought or said or did. Mm-hmm. And I began, to, you know, and at first, you know, you might think, oh, maybe they heard my tape or my lecture and they, you know, were saying it. But really what it was is we were all collectively hearing a similar message. It's, you know, and we're, again, as I said, if we're fortunate enough to be able to channel that, it's it's a luscious piece for us to be shared with others is really what it is. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, you know, working with plants is such a deeply human thing. Every single one of our ancestors, except for maybe for most of us, the last few generations had really um, deep relationships with plants. And so it's just a remembering. And I've had that same experience where I come to some like, oh my God, realization about herbalism. And then I start reading other people's books or posts. I'm like, oh yeah, everyone's realizing the same thing because we're all just remembering. Yeah, we're just we're all on the same wavelength. It's actually really beautiful once you let your ego like, you know, pat it on its head and say, sit down, you know, <laughs> back down there. Then it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, a really great example of that is when when we first formed United Plant Savers. I remember the process that led up to that first meeting that we had that I, you know, that I called together because I was concerned, but I had been noticing and observe, first of all, I had been noticing and observing that herbalism was becoming very popular and that was incredible and wonderful. And yes, it didn't, you know, engender a different set of problems, but the overall picture was really awesome. But it, you know, and then I began to wonder, and this was primarily through my travels in other countries where, where herbal, the lineage, the herbal lineage hadn't been broken. Like say when you travel through Western Europe or Eastern Europe, you know, those people have always used herbs and yes, they use modern medicine, but they don't think using St. John's word is strange or anything. And there never was a break in that tradition, but the plants that the tradition was based on are in dire straits. And in some of those countries, it's illegal. You can't even pick common weedy plants because they're just not abundant. And the only place you ever really see very many of us in protected areas. So I remember one time I came back from one of those trips and I was standing on my front porch at Sage Mountain looking out over hundreds of acres of wilderness and, you know, just contemplating how lucky and fortunate we were to still have this kind of wilderness that still fairly vast amounts, though we all know it's being, it's di- diminishing quickly. And we still have all of our medicinal plants pretty much. And I just, it, well, the minute I thought of that, right along with that thought come, really? Is that really the case? Because where are all these plants? And I remember the first few years that I had been living in Vermont and um, I had just hiked and hiked and hiked looking for, you know, all of those beautiful medicinals that should be growing there, like bloodroot, black cohosh and golden seal and ginseng, which would be rare, of course, but there I was on the range for them. And I found no ginseng, of course, and no golden seal, of course. I found bloodroot and very, very little black cohosh and many of these plants where this no longer there. And it just was going, my, my brain was going click, 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 click. And so um, we were getting ready to have an international herb symposium. So there was herbalists coming from all over the country. And I just decided to invite a few of them. There's maybe about 15 or 20 to stay after the symposium and to, to have a forum, a discussion, 
to just ask them, you know, have you been noticing that there are problems? And so, you know, lo and behold, as we sat in that circle, there was, I had, I had been smart enough to invite like manufacturers, practitioners, wildcrafters, you know, or, um, uh, you know, just a whole segue of different, herb, just a whole group of different herbalists there. And every single one of them had the same realization. They had all been concerned. And I, again, that's an example of, you know, it wasn't like I was just going, oh, the plants really need our help. Let's form an organization. Everybody at that time was concerned and not sure what to do about it. And so that's what we said. Well, if there's a problem, what should we do about it? That was how we started United Plant Savers. And um, so it's a long a roundabout kind of communication about how it is that we really are almost always on the same wavelength. When we're tuned in, we definitely are. <laughs> yeah, And also it's a good story about how United Plant Savers got started because that in itself has really changed the voice of American herbalism. Absolutely. It was going to be one of my questions. So that was perfect. Um, why don't you explain a little bit about what UPS does? Yeah. So, you know, really um, before United Plant Savers was formed, pr the primary interest in herbs were what the plants could do for us, you know, and, and um, there was, a, of course, a huge, that, that included a huge number of things, you know, people were looking at them from their intelligence and their the way they connected with our hearts and the way they helped us heal and the beauty that they were. But really there was very little thought about plant, medicinal plant conservation. Now there are many wonderful organizations in the United States that are plant protective. You know, there's the New England Wildflower Society that was our first, uh, the very first organization in the United States that focused on conservation of, 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 um, of all wildflowers. But there was nothing that was really looking at the market value of these plants and how they were being marketed. And, you know, those, those ones that have such a demand in the market. So that was where we stepped in and, and our, you know, we started off by not, you know, we had to define what our mission statement was and it was to really ensure, um, you know, an everlasting supply of these plants, both for people to use and also for the earth itself. So conservation, preservation and cultivation were our, primary you know the primary things that we wanted to focus on and we did decide to limit it at that time to North American plants not necessarily plants around the world um, and that was because you know as a very small organization with no money we needed to have a manageable goal and so you know we felt like if we could focus on what was here we could create a model of conservation that uh, for medicinal conservation that other countries could use but we could at least manage what you know we could perhaps accomplish what we wanted to so so the number of things that we did from right from the beginning was we established a sanctuary project so people would have the opportunity to create botanical sanctuaries on their own properties and replant the wild and that would mean maybe just taking a patch of your yard and assuring that you had native medicinal plants growing there that would then bring in native pollinators and bring in the question from your neighbors, you know. So that's been a wonderfully successful part of our organization. We also were able to purchase to the really goodwill of a couple of our supporting members, um, Michael and Judy Funk, of 350-acre botanical sanctuary. That's really like our crown jewel because it's in forever protection and it is natively growing. Most, you know, found, found on the land is almost all of the at-risk plants, at least all of them that are in the temperate part of the United States. So you find growing there naturally golden seal and ginseng and black cohosh and 
the chalaripans and the blue cohoshes, you just, so many of these plants are just thriving there. And then a big project was to identify which plants that as uh, communities and also as manufacturers and, and even for the government say, which plants we needed to be most concerned about. So you can imagine, you know, how challenging that was because everybody has their favorite plants on that list. You know, nobody wants to see OSHA on that list or white sage or sandalwood or, you know, false unicorn root for God's sakes, you know? So there's, there was, you know, it took a lot of, a a lot of work to create a list and it's a non-definitive list, which means that it's always open for discussion and, um, and then what's pretty magical, I know I'm rambling on about this, so you can stop me. No, time. please go ahead. What's magical is how we created that list in the beginning was we did it by surveys, by sending surveys out to hundreds of different types of herbalists, the wildcrafter, the manufacturer, but people who worked with plants, right? And they would send back their answers of what they thought in their bioregions needed to have focus. And it took, it took a long time. It took a couple of years. And Rich Ocek of Horizon Seeds is one of the primary mo- movers on this project. And also Tim Blakely. There was a group of herbalists who really poured their heart and energy into this. And over a couple of years, we came up with this at-risk list and then to-watch list. And then, of course, as our organization grew and you know became more credible, the question came, well, how can you prove that these plants are? You can't just do it by people's surveys and their thoughts. So we had to develop an um, at-risk assessment tool. And it had to be creditable and, you know, stand up to government scrutiny and university scrutiny. So we had Kelly Kencher of the University of Kansas and some of his um, graduate students work on this. For It took about four or five years to develop. And I just have to say that it's amazing to me that the at-risk assessment tool and the, that list that we put together in the very beginning, they really, you know, there are some shifts and some changes, but it's remarkable how much they support each other. Am I making sense? Like just that very non-scientific way of, well, what plants do you think are at risk and should mm-hmm. be on the list? Really holds up. It's kind of like in the medicine world too, you know, like you don't need to have all necessarily have all that science to prove what really is troubled out there mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. So those are, you know, we've written books, we've held conferences, we've worked so hard in education. And this year we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so we've been at this work for 25 years and it really has changed the focus of herbalism. So conservation is usually a big issue. Um, looking at cultivated plants, especially of those plants that are at risk or to watch looking for cultivated sources has become, you know, a better way than just going after the wild crafted. So there's, there's been a lot of shifts in those 25 years and a lot more that still need to happen. But. Mm. I'm so happy to hear that whole story. You answered so many questions that I've just had floating around in my mind for a long time. And the, um, the list of the at-risk plants and the to watch is so important. And I see herbalists reference it all the time on social media, you know, when they're trying to educate individuals or larger companies who are over harvesting. And this whole line of thought, I think that you began with United Plant Savers has really trickled down to my husband and I who are doing this huge process of planting local native medicinals on our acre of land out here. And, you know, we've done an herb, 
herbal products business for years and we're trying to really cut back on the wild crafting, even though we do it super respectfully and you know, all that stuff. If we can just be growing these plants on our own land, we can have that less of an impact on the land well, around us. I think that's so true for and also like it this whole project, like when you really look at how big it is, it's really supporting another endangered species, which is the American farmer. You know, mm-hmm. it gives it gives the farmers an opportunity to grow plants, some of them which are, you know, high-end crops like golden seal and ginseng, they they're very intensive to grow. Or even something like clergy root, the demand for it is really high. So I just think it's another opportunity. And, you know, that's always something that comes up too. Does this mean that we herbalists shouldn't wildcraft because it's such an ancient art? We say there's so much to wildcraft. You have all the dandelion and burdocks. At least at this point in history, those plants are very prolific because they're designed to be prolific. You know, they're designed to travel with people, to seed rapidly. They like all different kinds of places to live. But when you start to look at those medicinal native plants, they're usually very habitat specific. They usually have a much more um, difficult um, reproductive, more challenging reproductive systems. They don't usually produce thousands of seeds that will just grow anywhere. And the interesting thing about it is all of those weedy species that are so prolific <clears throat> are really those plants that were used for everyday health and wellness, you know, the everyday illnesses. And it's those rare plants that were used for specific things, you know not to use so much. And because in our culture, we don't focus enough on health and wellness. We're having to reach for these heavy medicines, whether it's pharmaceuticals or herbs far more than our ancestors had to, you know, we just, we have to refocus on how to build strength and health. And then we can just, and we can eat dandelion and be healthy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Take care of all of our, our illnesses with these simple weedy plants and save those more at those more at risk specific ones for occasional use and then and buy those from organic farmers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Um so man, you just you're involved at, you've been at the beginnings of so many important movements in herbalism. And I want to talk now about what's happening with fire cider and (laughs) let's let's just you know assume that the listener has no idea what fire cider is or what is happening with it right now great well fire cider is just as was one of those many simple herbal formulas it was developed in the herb school kitchen um in the from where we can figure it was either the late 1970s or the very early 1980s because it appeared for the very first time in my home study course that I published in 1981 so we know that it was in there i still have a printed copy of that and it was a it was fun it was one of those fun recipes we i had an intention of wanting to make a formula that was kind of an everyday wellness that you could use common kitchen ingredients there were other formulas out at the same time there was one really popular formula called cyclone cider. We've never been able to figure out whether cyclone cider came first or fire cider, but they they were very similar. And there was, of course, um, Dr. Christopher's apple cider vinegar cayenne formula. So there's been apple cider vinegar formulas forever. But this particular apple cider vinegar-based formula was a little different in that it was hot, spicy, pungent, and sweet. And it was also just, as I mentioned, and the intention of it was to create something that was made from, you know, just... You could go to the grocery store. You didn't have to be an herbalist. You could gather up the herbs that you grew even and make this remedy. And so it was kind of an experiment in the kitchen. We 
we had these rest, these herb, these ingredients, and we chopped them up, and we made a cider vinegar product, and we added honey to it, and it was really delicious. And so, it was one of many recipes that I taught people to make, and this one became particularly popular. I think partly because people could so easily adjust it, partly because it was very effective and tasty. So you know, you could give it to your sweetie pies and your relatives and friends, and most people thought it was good. Some people. Of course, this, all things, this was hot and spicy. And a lot of people didn't like it as well. Um, and it was inexpensive. And so it just began its own life. It went out there the way formulas should. And lots of lots of people started making it. And I started seeing it in other people's books and, you know, classes. It would be in the class notes. It was always part of the Herbs for Winter Health because it was a warming, stimulating, decongesting formula. Um, it, it, the ingredients in it were horseradish. The original ingredients were horseradish onion, garlic, ginger, and cayenne peppers, right, in an apple cider vinegar vase, a raw apple cider vinegar vase, and then sweetened to taste with honey or maple syrup. Um, and so, yeah, so for it had, so it just went out and became pretty well known. And actually, I'd say very well known. Lots of people, when as herbalism became more popular, lots of, lots of small businesses sprang up and people were making it and selling it in their co-ops along with their other products. And, you know, Everything was kosher in the herbal world. <laughs> and then it's been about five years ago. A young, a young company that had just started um, and had discovered the recipe somewhere. They, they said they found it on the herbal underground. Um, and they made it. And they were really excited about it. Like we all get when we make a product, right? They thought, oh, look what we've done. They weren't herbalists and they weren't involved in the herbal world. So they didn't really understand the tradition so much. They... Um, they just were excited the way herbalism is right now. It's kind of the in thing and people are doing it. And they had some success selling it. So they got some investors and they decided to make the company bigger and to grow it. And in that process, they trademarked the name. So we can say right there, that's, that was the, when, the, when, the, what do we want, when the fire cider hit the fan, right? <laughs> <laughs> they trademarked and, uh, the name fire cider. They trademarked the name, yeah, Which and that was really the only fact. You know, the fact that they started making it and selling it was great because that's what you know that's what it was meant to happen. But um, once they trademarked it, it, they claim ownership of the name, and then they claimed ownership of the formula. One of the owners then created a story that said his grandmother had made it and gave it to him. Um, but the story has since changed. There's lots of versions of the story that they've told, but nonetheless. The recipe had been out, it had been printed. There were many companies that were making it and selling it, not on a national level. You know, it was the way most herbalists are selling it at their local farmer's market or Etsy or whatever. But in order to keep your trademark, you have to, you have to kind of patrol. And if other people are using your name, you have to tell them they can't. So they began that process. They began to write to other companies that were selling it on Etsy and write them nice letters and say, we're so sorry. We own that name. It's our recipe. You can't make it. And some of these companies were making it for 10 or 20 years before this, before Shire City. So it caused quite a stir. Um, the internet, a big storm happened on the internet, which I, on, the, on Facebook and stuff, which I never go on. So I didn't really know what was happening. It was, it was my son who notified me and he said, there's some pretty nasty stuff going on out there about this recipe that you made, mom. And he said, I think you might want to get involved. And so my involvement was simply to say, calm down, everybody. You know, this is a mistake. I just need to write to them and let them know the history of it. 
and everything will be fine. But unfortunately, it wasn't fine. They refused to drop the trademark. They ended up then suing three of the young herbalists who had um, mobilized and, and put to, you know, helped to uh, create a, um, an online resource uh, and a boycott and um, to boycott the product, right? And they sued these, they're three farmers. So they sued them $100,000, which they continuously claim they didn't do, but it's in all the court records. Um, and so anyway, the, so we've been going to trial now. The, the, the trial has just been happening. We've been in seven days in federal court and the outcome is still yet to be decided. I do have to say, you know, it's nerve wracking and scary and there's a lot of money involved um, against us and all of that. But I do have to say the process has been fabulous and I am so proud of the way the whole herbal community has stood up for, it's not just for Firesider, you know, really if it was just about one name, it would hardly be worth the effort. But it's really, um, it's really about the process because if one traditional name can be, can be trademarked, um, then that will leave all of the herbal products that are out there up for trademark. It means that, you know, something that you're making that you might have been making from your grandmother and somebody decides to trademark it, you won't be able to sell it anymore. Um, and a good example of that is we always, I like to point out that, you know, Firesider has been around for 40 years in a popular herbal formula, but another one after, after um, Firesider was trademarked, then for the, again, the second time it happened was another company came in and trademarked Four Thieves. Four Thieves vinegar has been made, sold, and used for over 400, 500 years. So we do not want to see that precedent happen in the herbal community because this warm sharing community that has you know, readily shared recipes just across the board, you know, here's my formulas, here's my recipes, that's going to really change. And I do want to clarify, it's not that people don't, don't trademark names. I mean, in, in the herbal community, lots of people do. When you, and it's the reason why you spend, you know, a lot of money and energy developing a product and naming it, and then you're going to market it and sell it. You don't want somebody to come along and go, look how good she's doing. I'm going to take that name. So it's really a good thing to do, you know, if you're in the herbal business, but, um, but not to trademark names that are popular, already well used. And so I started to mention this, but in our, in the court case, I was so proud because we had, I felt so much relief and, and was proud of how well the herbal community represented itself. We had unbelievable witnesses that almost all of them paid their own way and took time out of their busy life to come and stand up for their herbal traditions. We had so much incredible evidence that proved that it had been sold. We have people who had documents, you know, their sales receipts that went back 20 and 30 years. So everything, it points to the fact that there's a great possibility we'll win, except that in the trademark laws, everybody tells us that it's a very slippery slope and that, you know, it's not based on, it's, it's based on other things. It's not always who had it for the longest. It's, you know, they've made it into a big company. So who knows, maybe they'll end up with it. But no matter what happens, I feel like we've won because we did, we did stand up and we did, we put in a, a very good ethical fight. We, we've been very well mannered through this all. We've gotten a lot of accusations of being the angry herbal crowd, but we were not the angry herbal crowd we were just saying you know you can make this like everybody else nobody's ever told you that you can't sell you be you can become the national in company you know and do do all these great things we'd all be happy for you just let the trademark go because you don't own it it's not yours you didn't make it it's not your recipe 
So anyway, that's kind of that. So we just ask people not to buy, you know, if, if they want to help with this in any way, just not to buy trademarked the TM fire cider, but to buy, so nobody else can call their products fire cider. Now we have to, they're, they're um, always camouflage, but you'll recognize them. Hot, spicy vinegar recipes. Mm-hmm. They're called like hot shots and, um, you know, fire tonics. And they have all kinds of It's been fun seeing the creative yeah. names people are coming up with. Hellfire cider, wildfire yeah, cider. Right. <laughs> there's some great ones. Yeah. And, you know, all the publicity and, you know, there's always a silver lining and everything you have to look for. But I have to say that all the publicity has made vinegar products really popular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I see all the ways that it's a win too. There's the um, awareness raised around the product and I don't, like ethics in herbalism. I, it's, I mean, it, I would have been shocked to have received the response back from that company saying, too bad we trademarked it. I, I mean, I would have been like, you, oh, it's just a misunderstanding. You know, this is all going to get worked out. Don't even worry about it. And I don't know, it's just so hard to understand what's going on in their minds and why they would fight this when there's proof, there's proof that that's your name and your recipe. It's it's so hard to understand. Well, I think that they had investors and I think that, you know, they were, you know, all in all, they probably started off with really great intentions and then they had investors and they had lawyers who were probably making a lot of money. Yeah. It's got maybe some bad advice, you know, and they also maybe didn't realize how important this was to us, you know, like um, it was important. As I said, it was really important, not just for fire cider, because that's just a product, you know, we can make it and change the name. And, um, but I, it's very important because uh, it just shouldn't have happened. It's wrong. It's, it's not a good thing. And, and it will change. It means like, you know, Klaus's liniment and Zoom balls and Miracle Grains and Kava Chai and all these just names that you see everywhere. Um, they can just be swooped up. And they will be strictly because people can make money now selling them. And I don't, you know, it's too bad. But on the other hand, it's really great that people can earn a livelihood, right? Let's just do it ethically. Let's keep yeah. this clean. Let's just rejoice in the plants and share them with our hearts wide open. Yeah, I, I love the slogan that the free fire cider movement is using um, traditions, not trademarks. Yeah, yeah. So, so what's next? Do you have an idea of when the ruling will happen? Yeah, so the the trial is officially over. The you know the witnesses and all of that, and then sometime in June, the lawyers. So this is a federal court, so it's different than um you know, the county courts and all that. It's a, it's a very different process, which of course, none of us knew. So it's been so educational, but um, so in June, um, the lawyers do a debriefing and they present their, I think the debriefing is you take all of the evidence and you, you make it brief, a briefer statement and you present that to the lawyer. And then in July, they'll do a closing argument. And then after that, the judge has the opportunity to decide so sometime probably by the end of July, we'll know. And um, if we win, we'll have to do a major celebration. I was just thinking of everybody uncorking bottles of fire cider <laughs> through the streets. And if we lose, we're going to have to really support those three women with more than love because, yeah, it'll be pretty hard. But yeah, 
I don't, I think, you know, we're going to stay really positive. And like I said, no matter what happens, we will have one because as an herbal community, we stood really together on this one. Yeah. And it, it seems like they are receiving a lot of support already. And I really think the herbal community would rally if it doesn't go in their favor. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so people can find out more at freefiresider.com. Um, so you are sort of in a transition phase in life or moving into a different phase where you just you recently moved off of Sage Mountain, which had been your home and sanctuary and teaching location for decades, right? Yeah, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. What um yeah, what tell us about that transition. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really, that was a hard one. That was probably my longest, most passionate love affair. 30 years with a mountain, you know, that just in every way was nourishing and incredible. It's a really beautiful place. It's it's a 500-acre wilderness retreat center that's sort of in the middle, just surround, surrounded by thousands of acres of woodlands. and um, In Vermont. Yeah, it's in Vermont. And, um, yeah, it's not the easiest place to live. It's up in the mountains, so we have long, cold winters and lots of snow, which is why I could write so many books. So we had these long winters I had to do something creative in. But it really was powerful for me because it it was actually uh, provided like a cave time. And every winter I could stop that busy outer world flow of traveling and teaching and, you know, just being out in the world so much. And I could come deep inside and, you know, sit by that wood fire and drink my tea and read and write. And yeah, it was very beautiful. Um, and it really transformed thousands of people's lives. You know, all the students that came would have these wonderful experiences. I used to laugh and say, you know, people always think they come to the mountain to study with me, but it's really with the mountain spirits. It's really the mountain that is the teacher here. Yeah. So, um, but it, I just, my husband and I, it's, it was a big plot of land. And even though it's wilderness, it still requires a lot of, there's a lot of upkeep and maintenance. There's lots of buildings and, you know, trails that had to be cleared and roofs that had to be snowed and we just couldn't do it and I'm in my 70s I turned 70 this year and my husband's in his late 60s and it was just proving to be a lot of work and a lot of work for us and we were ready for change too you know it's like it's I like change I've had major big changes in my life and yeah I was just kind of looking forward to the next one and so we decided we wanted to look for new stewards new owners and people to caretake that land and it took us a long time. We had a lot of interest, but we were very, you know, our first concern was finding people that would carry on the wilderness, the dream of the wilderness, and really stand up for those trees because our wildernesses are just under terrible demise from logging interests and building and sprawl and, you know, all the things that, along with all the natural things going on, you know, with the, the tree borers and everything. But Anyway, so it took a while, and eventually my really good friend Emily, who is another fabulous herbalist and activist and just a kind and sensitive person, she had been coming up to Sage Mountain and studying with me for about 10 years, and she started really looking at taking over the stewardship, and, you know, she's from Florida, she's a Florida girl, and she's never spent a winter in Vermont, so there was a, there was a lot of concern about that, but she's really thinking of, you know, not moving there full time and still keeping her business in Florida. And so we talked and it was a really good switchover. And I feel really good about her ability. She's doing it with a team of people of really wonderfully good people. And I'm close enough to mother hand. We only live an hour and a half North of it. So, yeah, so that transition happened and it wasn't just about leaving my, my land, the land, 
but it was also about transiting my my work load as well, shifting what I'm what the next stage of my life is, which I'm not sure yet actually. I'm I decided, you know, it's time to sort of empty my overfull cup and just to stand it out in the rain again and see what happens. <laughs> you know, not to fill it up with all these dreams and desires and things I want to do. I have a few more years left in my life and I think I might just want to open it to spirit, see what mm -hmm. spirit wants to fill it with. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, I've been a mover and a doer for a lot of years and I just want to step back from that a little bit. And so I've handed off the the big gatherings that I was organizing and directing to really worthy people and who are carrying them forth. That also had to do too, like with organizing those big events, which I've done for, as I said, since 1974 was the first one. Um, and I loved doing it. I loved all the aspects of it. They were complex and fun, but just bringing those people together, those numbers of people together and watching that herbal circle grow and grow and grow just having a small part in it was just amazing. But as the, the last few years, I realized as the herbal community has grown, its needs have changed and shifted. And where I felt like I could always stay ahead of things and was a leader in some ways in those areas, with these new shifts, I'm not the leader. I have so much to learn. So it was time for me to kind of step back into the circle and just help to hold it and allow other people, mostly young, brilliant minds and passionate hearts, to move it forward. So you know, it's that period in my life where I think we're all elders come to where you step aside to yet let yet those uh, to let to allow space for those young, brilliant minds that are so ready to lead to step in and to do their work. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm asking the questions. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? And you know, looking at some of the new things. You know, some of some of the um, questions around um, social justice issues, which I'm hugely supportive of. Um, sometimes I question some of the, the ways that it goes because sometimes it seems more divisive than coming together. Um, but then I have to say, I'm not aware of these things. So again, just sitting back and listening and watching things unfold and um, having my own thoughts and opinions, but also being open because that's how we learn. You know, We let always let our thoughts and opinions lead and it's not really a very suitable learning ground <laughs> so yeah mm, I really appreciate um the wisdom of your humility <laughs> it's, it's a it's a good lesson for everyone it's a practice of herbalism you're always kneeling to the ground right? exactly exactly <laughs> I, I think that came up before on this show you know that um humus or soil and humble come from the same root word yeah yeah. And then we reach it to the sky. So there's both, you know, we're like these conduits. It's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why it's captured the spirit, I think, of so many people around the globe, you know. Yeah. And it's also direct messaging that we can hear. You know, they have such clear voices. You know, you just bend to listen a little more and shut off all the chatter in your mind. It's like, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can hear these, these creatures. Absolutely. Again, just remembering how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, I think that that's a, a nice conclusion, Rosemary. Thank you so, so much. And I just have to say that you were so lovely through the whole process of scheduling. And, you know, for someone who's like, 
kind of a big deal. You just could not have been <laughs> more kind and easy to deal with and generous. So generous. So thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's always a really blessing to be able to share your passion that to even imagine people are interested. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you, Amber. Thank yeah, you for thank the you. work you're doing. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.